welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is part of a series where we're talking about why and how consultation skills promote better and safer care, focusing on each module in turn. Effective consultation skills have been repeatedly shown to contribute to safer, more accurate and more patient-centred interactions. Clinicians who consult skillfully make fewer errors and they also deliver care of better quality which in turn means they conform to the expectations of regulatory bodies such as the GMC or the NMC. So in each of these, how do these consultation skills promote better and safer care chapters, there are two examples. One is of a patient with a bad sore throat, and the second is a patient who says, I would like some sleeping pills. These very common scenarios need accurate clinical assessment and an effective therapeutic relationship must also be created for the right care to be offered in line with each patient's specific needs. However, such consultations can run into problems if the right consultation skills are not used. This could include conflicts, for example, if the clinician and the patient disagree about the treatment or the investigations. Safety incidents can arise if important clinical information is missed because of poor information gathering skills. Sometimes good treatment plans go wrong or fail completely if the patient's own point of view and their own needs are not properly understood because this means patients don't carry out plans. In some worst case scenarios, clinicians can be subject to complaints if things go wrong or if the patient is unhappy with how the consultation went. Many of these adverse things can be completely prevented if the right skills are used in the right way at the right time. Every part of the consultation offers opportunities for curiosity and inquiry using effective listening skills to improve the information available to the clinician and that helps to ensure that care is fully personalised to the needs of the individual patient. By exploring these two clinical situations in detail, each chapter will demonstrate the benefits of the relevant skills very clearly. So why have we chosen really bad sore throat and sleeping pills as clinical scenarios. Let's think about a really bad sore throat first. There's really no such thing as a sore throat. There's always a patient present who has the sore throat and for them the sore throat is only one aspect of their whole problem. Clinicians need to be able to maintain an open mind about what any particular patient's sore throat is really all about and avoid jumping to conclusions early on. Many clinicians start by thinking a sore throat is a straightforward situation and they focus on asking themselves questions like, is this viral or bacterial? Shall I give antibiotics or shall we not give antibiotics? This internal focus can mean important aspects of the patient's story are missed. However, thinking about the sore throat beforehand and thinking about the skills that are needed can help the clinician make a safer and more accurate assessment and plan. Thinking about the scenario when somebody says, can I have some sleeping tablets, is also quite similar. 
patients who are disturbed, stressed or distressed, may sometimes introduce their quite complicated problem with a seemingly simple request such as, can I have some sleeping tablets? Just as there is no such thing as a sore throat, there's no single answer to the question of whether a patient will benefit from sleeping tablets. Successful and safe consulting in this situation means that a clinician must be able to use the generalist skill of placing the patient's problem within their own specific context. However, as most sleeping tablets have a potential for addiction, and they might not even improve sleep very much, many clinicians have a core attitude that sleeping tablets are not helpful. Thus, they may mentally answer the patient's closed question of, can I have some sleeping tablets, with a kind of mental immediate, no, you can't. Coming to the consultation with a fixed view like this can make clinicians less curious about the full story that they need to hear from the patient and can affect the accuracy of the treatment plan. We're talking about module four now, and module four is about essential skills for effective explanations and planning of personalised care. I think Anne's going to tell us about an example where the clinician prepared reasonably, developed a reasonable rapport and a relationship, and even elicited important concerns. This consultation highlights the need to have some really good skills when you're considering planning care. So Anne, can you tell us about this uh, consultation that you reviewed a recording of? Yes, so this is Martha's story. So Martha's uh, 12 and her mother rang to get some advice. Martha's been unwell for a week. She's had a really bad sore throat, a slight fever, and she seems very lethargic and tired. She's not eating much, but she's drinking plenty of fluids. Martha's mother is also concerned as she thinks her, in her words, glands are up. She's had some negative tests for COVID-19. And during the initial telephone call, Martha's mother says she's quite concerned because one of Martha's schoolmates has got something similar and she needed some antibiotics. So the clinician decides to see Martha, examine her later that day. And before that examination, face-to-face -face review, the clinician checks the notes and sees no cause for concern. She's usually a well child. When the clinician examines Martha, there are significantly swollen glands in the neck and the tonsils are enlarged with a white exudate. And the spleen can be felt and the groin lymph nodes are palpable too. So the clinician goes on to explain to Martha and her mum that she may have glandular fever and suggests arranging some blood tests to confirm this as a diagnosis. And then meanwhile, they recommend that they continue the fluids and paracetamol and rest at home. They then go on to give Martha's mother a leaflet about glandular fever and how to look after themselves. And they take her through to the healthcare assistance area where they get the blood test done straight away. So they're really feeling like they've done a really thorough assessment. Yeah, I, I agree that's a, a good spot around the um, glandular fever issue, isn't it? And an opportunity for them to show some very good skills in introducing the examination, because it's one thing to look for glands in the neck, but I, it sounds like they needed some tact and diplomacy to explain to an 11-year-old girl why they were rummaging in her groin, but it sounds like that was probably done okay. Mm -hmm. So I can't quite see how there'd be any problem with this consultation. What, what happened next? Yeah, so two days later, this clinician was called in to see Martha again, who at this time was now consulting with a colleague. She now has a dramatic pink rash all over the body. It seems that Martha's mum, she remained concerned about antibiotics, about the idea that they might have needed to have some for Martha. 
and this hadn't been discussed in this face-to-face -face consultation and Martha's mum had decided that she would give her some amoxicillin which she actually had in the house from a previous family illness and Martha had started on these amoxicillin tablets and well this is when the, the new problems had developed. So she got a kind of predictable rash from, from amoxicillin and uh, sometimes those rashes can be both dramatic and quite unpleasant can't they? Yeah. Okay, so what do you think the clinician missed out then, uh, out of their thorough clinical assessment? How did this happen? So, the clinician who spoke to Martha and her mother initially, she heard the concerns that antibiotics might be needed, but she didn't then go on to use that information when explaining Martha's condition in the explanation and planning personal care phase of that consultation. Which skills do you think would have helped there then? What, what skills do they need to develop instead? So in this phase of exclamation planning, one of the key skills here is summarising. So actually using the information aligned to people's ideas and concerns and their expectations to create a summary which contains the facts. So also the skill of chunking and checking where information can give in small digestible amounts. Okay, so if the clinician had done that, so what kind of thing might they have said to, to Martha and her mother as a sort of summary then? So using a summary where perhaps he says something like, Martha has got a really bad sore throat and several of the glands are enlarged. I know that you've been wondering about antibiotics and I can appreciate why that might have seemed sensible as she feels pretty unwell. However, the glands mean I'm concerned that she may have glandular fever and it's better not to give any antibiotics in glandular fever as they can trigger off quite bad rashes. So followed up by something like, so I'm wondering what questions you have now. Okay, well, I've got two thoughts about this. First of all, that summary kind of acts as an aid memoir to the clinician, doesn't it? Because that thing about, I think my daughter needs antibiotics, when you put that in the summary as part of a person's feelings about the situation, then it kind of reminds you that you might have to address that in some way in the explanation. But the other thing is that I'm thinking here is this summary seems to move the consultation forward. It kind of sums things up, but by saying, I'm wondering what questions you've got now, you're moving into that chunking and checking business where there's a bit of information. I think she might have glandular fever, but there's also checking that response, like, what do you think now uh, and what's going on? So that thing about what questions have you got now could even help the clinician if they'd forgotten about the expectation of antibiotics. What do you think Martha's mum would have said if she'd been invited to ask some questions? Do you think she would have picked that up? Yeah, I mean, that was what was on her mind, wasn't it, about the, the uh, school um, schoolmate who'd had the antibiotics. So I think that would have, I think it's likely that I would have come out at that point. And that's specifically saying, what questions do you have now? Not the hopeful, any questions, <laughs> and uh, which I think invites people often just to say no. So I think specifically asking what questions do you have now and, also, and, and acknowledging that questions that you have now may be different from questions that you had at any other part of the consultation. So that is an idea that you're doing smaller chunks, you're inviting a response as you go along, and that if you've checked knowledge about glandular fever, and that could bring other important concerns into the open and preempt these sort of kinds of problems that have otherwise evolved. That's an interesting one because checking prior knowledge is really important because, say for example, take glandular fever, 90% of patients make a good recovery pretty quickly within a few weeks. But sometimes people's perception is that glandular fever makes you ill for months and months and months and you get chronic fatigue and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And to invite that question early on and to be able to 
provide reassuring and accurate information early on could actually be quite important in terms of helping people to have the right expectations about their illness, mightn't it? So thinking about developing better skills in this explanation and planning of personal care, um, how should we approach trying to develop this in practice? So I think to start by developing good summarising skills, use video recordings as a trigger, have a look at consultations and practice creating effective summaries that cover the facts and the feelings. So in this case, Martha is unwell with inflamed tonsils and several enlarged glands, the facts, and this has been worrying and made you concerned that antibiotics may be needed, which covers the feelings. And there's useful teaching and learning materials in each chapter of the, the module. Okay. Uh, the other thing which I often notice is that the explanation part of the consultation is often a bit of a monologue from the clinician. So the patient talks in the first half of the consultation and then it's almost like they get a lecture in the second half so with the, as the clinician's sort of saying, this is what's wrong, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do next. Um, so I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts about creating a dialogue in that second part of the consultation. What, what, what does that mean to do that? So I think you're right. I think that the um, the idea of continuously stopping and regularly asking patients for their response, that's really the key part of this. And I think that often is quite, it feels quite counterintuitive um, to the clinician. Um, I think that, that traditionally when people have learned how to consult, often it's the you talk, I talk sort of model where the patient talks at the beginning of the consultation and the clinician sort of talks at the end. So I think taking the skills and then really practicing them to stop, and it might feel a little bit uncomfortable, and like I say, a bit counterintuitive, just to really put in, put in these regular pauses to really find out about how the patient's feeling at, at each of these times. And ask patients specifically what their thoughts are about your proposed course of action or a treatment plan until it becomes second nature. And this has really helped to create management plans that are much more effective because actually then patients are attuned to what you're trying to explain, but also that the clinician becomes really attentive to the needs of the patient and can really incorporate their own ideas and wishes. That's much more likely to be effective, isn't it, mm. really? Yeah. Um, one of the things I think is useful in training is to practice these skills of summarising and chunking and checking, perhaps away from the patient. You can either use uh, information that you've got in a recorded consultation or some of the scenarios in the TALC chapters. Uh, and this means practising just one or two skills in effect. This is called a skills rehearsal, so practice summarising or practice chunking and checking. And it's a very highly effective way to develop skills to a higher level. And as you say, you then need to practice it in in every consultation till it becomes second nature to check out with the patient what how they're responding. And I found one of the most useful questions is to say, what's your response to what I've just said? And there's often a bit of a pause and that can feel a bit awkward, but actually that's a, that pause is useful. It's the patient thinking. And sometimes they then say, well, that seems reasonable. I've got this question. Or sometimes they go, there's no way I'm ever going to start taking insulin because I hate needles or whatever. And then you get information that's really going to help you understand what will help them going forwards. We discussed that in a training session with um, some trainee clinicians. And they all sort of squirmed slightly in their chairs and reflected at the fact that they seemed sort of awkward and clunky to do that. But then really interestingly, a follow-up um, session 
when they'd had the opportunity to go and try it out, actually a lot of them reflected then that it had been really effective. And although it didn't feel second nature at that point, they could see its value and they were going to go away and practice it some more. Mm. I think starting even by looking at the patient's non-verbal response can be a help, like really to look at them and think, how is this going down? Um, but then to follow that up with an explicit ask, you know, how, how are you thinking about this now? Or, or where do you feel about this now? It's so useful. And it's much better than asking a closed question like, are you happy with that? To which people will always say yes, even if they're mentally thinking, I'm never doing that in a million years. So uh, an open directed question like, what are your thoughts about that? Is probably most useful. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Avril. So, Avril, are you able to tell us uh, about somebody who was consulting regarding sleeping tablets? Yeah, I've got a really interesting story here and one that perhaps is, is uh, more typical of the kind of things that happen in primary care than in secondary care, but nonetheless, I think has got lessons for every setting. So uh, this is taken from a recording about a patient called Tony. She's 64, lives alone in a small flat. Now, looking at her records... She's on amlodipine and indapamide for hypertension. She's also on atorvastatin, and she takes paracetamol for osteoarthritis in her knee. She consults pretty often about her blood pressure, the knee pain, and also about eczema. Now, this tends to flare up at times of stress, and she's had lots of problems with anxiety over the years. And many years ago, she was actually addicted to diazepam, which she got on in slightly complex circumstances. But she was eventually weaned off it with a certain amount of difficulty. And the clinician's message was, can I have some sleeping tablets? So obviously in that context, there's a little bit of wariness about what to do about sedatives. Now during the call, Tony said she couldn't sleep, that she was lying awake for most of the night, feeling all upset and anxious with racing thoughts, was her words. And her eczema had flared up and the itching made her sleep even more difficult. So... Following up all this and picking up on the clues using information gathering skills, the clinician did establish that Tony was sleeping perfectly well till about two weeks previously. At that point, she got an invitation to attend a wedding. Now, this is the wedding of her much-loved niece, Maria. Fairly small, quiet event. But the problem is really her brother, Neil. He's going to be there to give his daughter away, even though Maria's mother divorced him years ago because he was violent and used to get very drunk. And it seems that Tony really dreads meeting Neil, partly because he was so cruel to her sister-in-law, who she gets on really well with, but also because when they were young, Neil bullied and hit her as well. And she says, abuse me when no one was looking. And at the same time, she doesn't want to miss this important event in Maria's life. Now, the clinician did empathise with Tony's predicament and built a relationship with her as best they could and pointed out that she doesn't actually have to go to the wedding if she doesn't want to. They offer some creams and also a sedative antihistamine to help, saying it might help the itching. Um, I can't do much about the wedding situation, but maybe being less itchy and having a sedative will help you sleep. They don't want to give any actual benzodiazepine tablets because of a past history. And Tony also declines any citalopram, saying that's useless stuff. I tried it once and it just made me feel sick. OK, so it sounds like she tried hard with the sedative antihistamine, but it's obviously a complicated situation. So tell us what happened next. Well, Tony started ringing up the practice again. Two days later, she spoke to another clinician saying the cream's not helping and can she have some sleeping tablets now? They have a similar conversation and she contacts the practice almost every day for the next week or so, every time wanting some of those sleeping tablets I used to have. 
Now, none of the clinicians really feel this is appropriate and there were a lot of rather tense and difficult discussions. So I think it might be useful to discuss how a different approach could help this. So most clinicians would recognise it as being uh, something that they've dealt with or similar situations have cropped up. So whereabouts could clinicians go to get more information and start to develop skills to deal with this sort of situation? Well, in TARP module 4, 4.8 actually, there's a chapter called Do Non-Clinical Problems Take Up Your Clinic Time? which is specifically about the skills which help when the, the main problem isn't really a formal medical one, like whether Tony goes to the wedding or not really isn't the doctor's decision to make, is it? And, and this can help to, the skills can help to kind of get around this in a useful way. Um, so how can this approach work? Now it's called the bathe approach and, and I'll go through it, maybe you could make some comments as we go along. So. The bathe approach helps the conversation to move into more productive directions and it stands for bathing the patient in empathy. So B is for background. So first of all, using some of the summarising skills also in, in module four, the clinician can sum up the facts. So you're not sleeping because of worry about this wedding invite, but also the feelings. You feel quite fearful of meeting Neil again and angry with him about the past. And you also feel a great loyalty to Maria and want to share her special day. So that kind of sums up the background. Any, any thoughts about that? A couple of thoughts, really. I think one, I think that's a it's a way of demonstrating to a patient that you have been listening and that you, you've heard what they say. And also it gives them an opportunity to correct you, I think, in that position. If you've understood, as you think you have, what their thoughts and feelings are, then it's a great opportunity. And, and actually maybe, and I think in these particularly complex situations, often people don't really know what their thoughts and feelings are. So sometimes that moment of clarity can be helpful to start moving a discussion forward. Mm. I think this, again, it illustrates how a summary is, as we would call it, the engine of the consultation, as in uh, TALC 4.1. I think as well, one of the important things here is this, there's quite a careful um, use of empathy in the sense that it, it identifies very specifically that she's fearful, angry, and loyal. Uh, and these are quite specific words. They're not saying, oh, you feel generally worried or generally bad. They're, they're, they're very particular. Now, after B is for background comes A is for how is this affecting you? And um, this is about the feelings, really, and, and exploring in a, in a deeper way about the impact of the situation. And by asking that, the, the clinician who saw Tony later on discovered that she was anxious and not sleeping. She's been turning her phone off so that she doesn't see any of those, you know, enticing wedding preparation photographs and the dress and all that kind of thing. She stopped going to see her sister-in-law. She stopped seeing Maria as usual. And in fact, she stopped going out or talking to anyone. So again, empathy comes in here uh, and the, the clinician's able to sum it up again, saying you're sort of isolating yourself from people. That's the facts uh, because you're so upset, which is the feelings again. Any thoughts about assessing impact like that? It gives you a wider perspective, doesn't it, about all the effects on somebody's life. And actually on the face of it, not going to somebody's wedding, a clinician may feel like, well, you know, why is this at my door? Or what's, you know, is it such a big deal? But actually when you, you hear the actually quite dramatic effects on her, Maria's day-to-day -day life, it gives the clinician a deeper understanding. And as you say, using some empathic statements can really help to build the relationship and, and again it, to move forward in the consultation.
That sense of being understood clearly is very soothing to people. Often clinicians feel they're supposed to fix something like this. And obviously they don't know the answer about whether she should go to the wedding or not. Uh, and so they feel they can't fix it. But actually being understood and to be able to articulate what you're thinking and what your problem really is often helps people quite a lot. Which brings us to the next element of bathe, which is T for what is troubling you the most about this situation. And this is such a useful question because it helps to kind of slightly focus things down a little bit uh, and get to the nub of what the issue really is. And Tony answered this by saying that she felt she was letting Maria down, someone she loves very much, and that Maria will think she doesn't really care about her if she doesn't go for the, you know, go and attend the wedding because she feels no one else knows about what a nasty person Neil's been over the years. So again, the clinician can use some empathy to both summarise and explore this. So the important thing for you is not to let Maria down because you care for her very, very much. And maybe to do an interpretation, your support must have meant a lot to her mother after the divorce from Neil, because that was a difficult divorce in an abusive situation. And to comment, you've been alone with your knowledge of how horrible he was to you in the past. And this focuses both on Tony's sense of vulnerability, but really also focuses on the important thing, which is she doesn't want to let Maria down at an important moment in, in the life. What do you think about this question about focusing down by saying what's troubling you the most? I think it has some benefits for Tony and also for the clinician. I think that it could help Tony to focus her own thoughts. The idea of, as we said, is that the clinician isn't here to fix his situation, but providing some focus and clarity for Tony might enable her to start to think about how she herself might resolve this situation. And I think that, again, demonstrating the concern of really wanting to understand where Tony is at with this problem can also help Tony, if she has developed some of her own thoughts, to be honest and open with the clinician as the consultation moves on. Yeah, I think one thing some people sometimes say is that um, the thing that's troubling them is, is that there isn't a single thing that's troubling them. They say there isn't just one thing, it's everything, you know, it's, and they make a big long list. And sometimes then it's useful to say, well, actually, it sounds like the thing that's troubling you is that you're overwhelmed, that there's too much to think about. And very often people say, yeah, 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 that's it. And both what you've just been saying about focusing, helping Tony to think about how she's going to deal with this situation, that thing about focusing on being overwhelmed as the main problem can help people move on, which brings us to H. Now, in the original description of the bathe technique, H stands for how you're going to handle the situation because it was set up, this whole bathe idea was set up by an American primary care physician. And I think Americans can say to each other, how are you going to handle this? And I'm afraid I can never say that. So I always say, how are you going to handle or tackle this situation? Because that seems more natural to me, but you can choose what you say. And at this point, the clinician's kind of handing the problem back to the patient in a supportive way and ask Tony what different ideas she could come up with and, and then to try and clarify what would be best. And in conversation, Tony actually does begin to work out a range of possible options. It's not just go to the wedding or not go to the wedding. She could go to the wedding but not the reception. She could talk to Maria and her mother about the issue. She could discuss it with another family member. She could go to the wedding but keep away from Neil, especially if he's going to get drunk. She could even decide to confront him if she wants to. The clinician asks in a curious way whether Neil could actually hurt Tony at the wedding, uh, which opens up a different kind of way of looking at things, because 
obviously that's a whole different situation from Tony as a child. And she just laughs and said, no way. Maria's fiancé is six foot two and plays rugby. So he'd stop Neil from doing anything, which is kind of reassuring, isn't it? So at the end of that, the clinician can sum things up empathically by saying something like, it sounds like you're thinking about choosing someone you trust to talk this over with. You're safe from Neil now. And it sounds like you'll find a way to make all this work. Uh, and that empathy and that summarising will often help people to feel a lot better. What do you think about that? Uh, how, how are you going to handle the situation thing, Anne? I think I agree with you about the word handle. It's perhaps not the word that I would use. I think, again, from my experience of using this technique, it's often really enlightening, actually, what patients will come up with. And it's infrequent that people don't have an idea of what they're going to do. It's actually much more common that lots of different ideas start to develop. And what's really important at this point is to encourage one people to talk about those but also just to use the right skills and language to allow the space for people to develop their own ideas but also to be as supportive around that and use empathy at every stage obviously to try and support them throughout this process. Interested in what you were saying there about um, helping people to think about different options or people coming up with options because sometimes people say things like oh what would you do or they say well I'm here because I don't know what to do so how, how would you kind of get them to start thinking about about things that they might do rather than trying to fix it yourself because you probably wouldn't come up with the right idea anyway yeah so I think often that's about sort of unpicking that a little bit you usually start with talking about thoughts because often people don't think they've got an idea but they know they've had a thought so I'll start with some phrases like what's gone through your mind about this and sometimes going back to that sort of basics and using language like that can really start almost like an open forum where people start to throw ideas out so they might say well I thought I might mm. so then using phrases like go on or tell me more well I thought I might have a chat with someone in the family mm. go on mm. and that just leads to a development of people's thoughts and often giving sort of legitimacy to people's own thoughts is an important starting point and then rolling with it after that. Mm, mm. So that's about accepting and showing empathy to mm. the processes they've got. I think the other thing I sometimes say is, look, I know you seem a bit stuck, but let's just do a little experiment. You know, if you could say anything you wanted about this situation or do what would be your ideal, you know, and Tony might say, well, my ideal would be, you know, for Maria to say, Neil, you're not coming to the wedding and get lost. Well, it, it, are there any other options? And then they might kind of go from something quite extreme mm. to something a little bit more practical. Or they might say, really, that's what I really want to happen. I don't want this person to be giving my beloved niece away. Well, how are you going to tackle that? How are you going to approach that? Well, I could go and talk to her. I could explain mm. what happened to me, blah, 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 whatever. And then they're, again, creating their own solutions. Mm. And it's always, like you say, often quite unexpected what people come up with. And again, very interesting uh, and uh, rewarding to find out how people solve their own problems. So this sounds like a, a very interesting and a very potentially useful technique. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you would go about developing the skills? I definitely think it's useful to practice this first in a training setting like a tutorial or a small group or something like that and there are very full details about how to do this in the written materials in the module. The, the basic approach is to take turns with a, a partner so pick a problem that you're willing to talk about 
the listener uses the bathe approach to help you as the speaker think through what you might want to do about the problem. It doesn't have to be a medical problem. It doesn't even have to be a serious problem. Um, one person once, when I was practicing this, chose to talk about how they were trying to get their son to do his piano practice because they were getting very frustrated because he wasn't. So it doesn't have to be a major problem. And in fact, simple problems are often quite useful to illustrate the bathe method. And one of the most important things is for the listener not to try and provide solutions, but to definitely provide empathy and active listening. So to feedback what they've heard and to show empathy about the feelings. Um, and then when you can do that, this often helps quite a lot. Um, so I don't know, you probably practice this as well. How, how do you think it goes when you practice using an ordinary problem, not a necessarily a clinical problem? Yeah, we've used this a number of times with our training clinicians. It's, it's gone down. I think often people are a, bit, a little bit skeptical at the beginning um, and I think that it takes some practice because you have to remember the different phases and then you have to put them into action. I agree with you that using a simple problem and a non-clinical problem, so I can think of a, a, a new, numerous different problems from you know building a kitchen extension to you know various sort of sort of family or life problems but I mean it's, it's gone well but I think the key bit is to practice um, and it may be that it takes more than one sort of non-clinical setting to just get the rhythm of it. Um, but it's been certainly the feedback on the effectiveness, certainly in clinical situations, has been really fantastic. Mm. I think taking this approach right from the very first consultation would have helped Tony quite a lot, actually, and probably reduce the number of rather tense conversations that she had afterwards. And this is about using the right skills in the right situation because it actually saves time as well. And I think if people are struggling to remember all the stages of the bathe technique, I think the crucial thing is to use active listening to understand the problem, to use empathy, and to remember that really useful question, what's troubling you the most about this situation? Because that helps to lead into, it leads naturally into, and how are you going to tackle that specific issue that's really troublesome? So uh, I hope people enjoy using this technique. It's really very valuable and very interesting and enjoyable to use as well. So thanks for discussing that, Anne. Thanks, Apple. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.